Hello, and welcome to the sound of fear. Nerves in the brain covered with concentrated amounts of myelin-insulating nerve cells may be the cause or effect of misophonia. Trigger sounds, typically repetitive, inducing involuntary fight or flight responses, resulting in violence or erratic avoidance, often paralleled with anxiety with no clear distinction between a symptom or a condition. The parts of the human brain holding fear, long-term memories, and other emotions are activated. White noise treatment with headphones and behavioral therapy are the only chance at improving function. Now please enjoy Smoke. Henry Peretz woke suddenly in the middle of the night to an utterly dark room. He glanced in the direction of the digital alarm clock by his bed. Dark. The DVR beyond the foot of his bed, also dark. Was it a blackout? He fumbled for his smartphone, found it, and checked the home screen. 11.06 p.m., 37% battery life remaining. He removed his spongy earplugs and listened to distant, jagged sounds of music and partying outside. Thankfully, separated from him by layers of concrete wall and plate glass. Halloween night. Pulling back the thick curtain, he saw it was also pitch dark outside. He activated his phone's flashlight mode and crept out of the bedroom, down the short hall, shoulder nudging one of the canvases he had mounted there, legs still half asleep, and made his way to the main living area. The light beam illuminated a few small pieces of furniture arranged around what he was currently painting, post-impressionist street scene of the townhouse in which he had grown up. He took a deep breath and let it out, driving off some of the disorientation. What had woken him? He climbed the two carpeted steps that led to the dining room table and chairs, sat down, and flipped through news alerts on his phone. Storm of the century. Power outages across lower Manhattan and Midtown on Halloween night. His mother was in Greenwich Village, not even six blocks from here, in a townhouse of her own. The subject he had been painting. His thoughts turned to concern for her, specifically her condition. The weather now was like that horrible fall season when he was seven years old and his mother had first started behaving oddly. She had made it clear to him it had been his fault that Tigger, the orange and white striped family cat he had loved so dearly, had been sent back to the pound. A few weeks earlier, Henry's own condition, a rare misophonic disorder, where he was intensely bothered by certain sounds, mostly those that were unexpected, loud, or repetitive, had manifested. His trigger had been the noise of the cat cleaning himself. Young Henry had become transfixed by it. The hair on the back of his neck had stood on end. It felt like all the saliva and enamel in his mouth retreated down his throat, and his teeth ached with ever-increasing ferocity until he shielded his ears or the sound stopped. 
Maybe it had been the stress of bringing up a child with misophonia that had caused his mother's illness, or maybe she was bound to blow up sooner or later, and his added troubles merely shortened the fuse. Whatever the case, her tipping point had been Henry asking her for a grilled cheese sandwich. At age seven, it was something he could have made himself. He was a smart kid, though he had been feeling lazy that day, and the ones his mom made tasted better. He had found her wrapped tightly in her light purple bathrobe, curled up in the nook, staring out of their three-paned bay window. When she looked over at him, he knew that he had made a terrible mistake. There was such alien hatred in her expression. His mother had stood up, stomped over, and raked him across the chest with her sharp nails, then calmly said, Tigger was sent away to die because of you. Henry hadn't cried, or even reacted, he was so shocked. His chest stung, so he walked out of her presence and into the bathroom with the maroon-colored tiles, lifted his shirt, and looked in the mirror. There they were, four marks across his seven-year-old skin, with color that had matched the tiles. The scratches had healed. His mother's words hadn't. It was the first time Henry had remembered feeling guilt, and every time he did something that made him feel guilty, his mind went back to that moment where she had attacked him and said those words. 11.15 p.m., 33% battery life remaining. He tried calling his mother. The call went through, then no sound. He glanced at the phone screen. Your call could not be completed at this time. She had dismissed the two or three times he had asked her to get a flashlight when the storm gathered strength on its way north from the Caribbean. Right about now, Mom was probably freaking out about the weather. She had medication for such things. She also lived alone, was quite old, and would probably have difficulty finding her meds in the dark. He'd have to go over to her place and make sure she was okay. He threw on a thick plaid shirt over the wife beater in which he slept, pulled on some jeans and a pair of canvas shoes. His wallet, his phone, his keys, two of them, on a simple key ring, earplugs, and he was ready to go. For a moment, he stood by the front door, hesitating. Out there, a hellscape of sharp, penetrating noises. What else could he do? Sit at home, trying to call in vain while his mother might need him? He clicked open the door, stealing himself for the sonic assault. There was a loud sucking sound, and a strong gust of wind threatened to dump him right back into the hallway. This freakish fall storm was unlike any other he had experienced. Terrifying. Beautiful. Once he got outside, the wind tore at him, violently changing direction with such frequency he buttoned his shirt to keep it from being ripped off his torso. After he'd taken a few steps down the block, the first fat raindrops fell. The endless sea of headlights and taillights on 3rd Street, the tops of the buildings around him retreated, hiding behind the ever-increasing rain. There was a yellow taxi in the midst of gridlock. He thought of climbing in. It was on duty, no fare. Still, it could take an hour to get to Mom's via car. Twenty minutes, tops, on foot. 
An hour was far too long a time to endure the constant shrieks of nightlife in the village on Halloween. Twenty minutes? Perhaps he could manage that. He made his way down third, toward Avenue of the Americas, when he slipped on something and fell onto the pavement. The fall dislodged one of his earplugs and scared off a large, gray cat that had been lurking between two parked mopeds. He reflexively covered the unprotected ear with his hand and got back up. The peals of deep rolling thunder weren't far off now. He looked in vain for the accompanying flashes of lightning. What time was it? He dared not take his phone out of his pocket in the rain for fear his only source of light getting soaked, then refusing to work. It looked like the line of cars hadn't moved, yet it didn't stop one or two angry New Yorkers from leaning on their horns to advertise their displeasure. He winced at each infernal honk, keeping his unprotected ear tightly shielded. When he dropped his hand, another horn would blare from a different location in the jam, and the whole cycle would begin again. The sidewalk was congested with revelers, many in costume, many dancing. The closer he got to the intersection, he navigated the pedestrians, careful where he stepped. The rain was soaking everyone. Why on earth was the city still full of people on such a miserable night? Angels with red feathers, evil clowns in white face makeup that now ran in hideous smears down their faces, a pack of women in black body stockings wearing cat ears. Many roared with laughter, drinking from plastic cups that must have had mostly rainwater in them at this point. The raucous chatter all around him was overwhelming. The village Halloween parade was tonight. And these were the paraders, trying to get home ahead of the storm. Hands pressed against ears, pushing his way through the crowd, he unintentionally elbowed, a curly-haired woman in the head. Ow! Coño! She yelled at him, frowning. She was costumed as a gorgon, in a Greek-style toga, with a tasteful arrangement of green and yellow snakes in her hair. The spike of her voice lingered in the form of a headache, zigzagging its way across his brain from one ear to the other, and back again. Hey, be careful, bro. Watch where you're fucking going, said a burly, dark-skinned man. His mask was white and tan bird face that he wore up on top of his head while he drank. The Gorgon's date. Sorry, Henry stuttered. That's better, said Burley and grinned, showing off perfectly straight white teeth. No hard feelings. Have a drink, bro. He offered Henry his brimming orange-colored cup with what smelled like watered whiskey. Uh, No thanks, he said, wincing at another woman who was yelling to her friend in Spanish. Burley insisted, and Henry was tempted for a moment to let the alcohol calm his jangled nerves, though he knew it could also make it that much harder to get to Mom's. No, Henry said again. Whatever, man. Henry had been shut inside his unit for the last two weeks, and hardly spoken to anyone on the phone in all that time. Sequestering himself while working on a new canvas always made it easier to achieve the artistic focus he needed to paint though he always paid the price on the other side, a strange kind of anxious, socially awkward fog that hung in his brain, plaguing him until he managed to speak to one or two people, gain some confidence, and bring himself by degrees to a state of relative social adeptness. Henry carefully stalked forward, hands pressed against his ears. 
It was like hiking down a narrow trail with buzzing angry hornet's nests on either side of him. He finally made it to the darkened neon sign of the Blue Note Jazz Club. He was close to the corner where Third met Avenue of the Americas. His mother was two blocks away. He already regretted being out here, though. For God's sake, she was probably fine. Still, he pressed on. That was when he spotted the cat again, keeping itself dry under the next dark green awning. That's a coincidence, he thought. It sure looked like the same cat. Smoke-colored fur and lambent yellow eyes like illumined skyscraper windows. The cat looked at him, blinked its bright peepers, and rubbed its face on the brick of the corner building, casually marking its territory. Henry found it hard to imagine that cat so calm in a sea of rowdy, stomping human feet. It encouraged him. If the cat can do it, so can I. The cat slipped through the legs of the crowd, making its way towards the street corner. When Henry got close enough, he came upon flashing blue police lights and a few cops with rain slickers directing traffic. Right now, they were only letting the Avenue of the Americas traffic through, while 3rd Street had to sit there and wait. He spied the subway entrance, though he had no desire to go spelunking in the dark, piss-scented train station, waving his thousand-dollar phone and only source of light out in front of his face. Instead, he elbowed his way through the costumed revelers and waited in the rain for the police to signal it was okay to cross. The officer closest to him was bigger than Henry by a long shot. Rain poncho stretched tight across his belly. To his left were two tall men dressed in suits with plastic, giant eyeballs for heads. The police cruiser lights made the rain falling around them look like glittering ice. Henry waited endless moments for the officer to signal the direction change so he could cross the street. Finally, he spoke up. How about letting Third take a turn for a while? Shut up, you idiot, the cop said. I know what I'm doing. The big man looked strong, though he was also fat and well into his fifties. O'Malley read the name tag. By contrast, Henry was a lean 32-year-old. The Avenue of the Americas traffic was moving slowly. If he darted across the street, O'Malley probably wouldn't be able to catch him. There were two other cops nearby within shouting distance, though, and they didn't look slow. If any one of them managed to catch Henry and put him in handcuffs, he would have to sit there tortured by noise until he somehow could explain his mission and condition to them, and they looked unsympathetic. He chickened out. Maybe he'd be able to cross the street up another block or two. He had to do something, anything, except stand in this cacophony for another second. He stepped off the curb with the large, pink-faced officer eyeing him and started to walk towards fourth. Henry was angry he'd been denied the fastest way across. He didn't fault O'Malley for not knowing the crap Henry was dealing with right now. He did fault the cop for being so fucking rude about it. For a moment, Henry was seized with a mischievous impulse and said one word when he passed the fat policeman. Oink. The thick arm of O'Malley shot out quicker than Henry would have thought possible, grabbed him by the shoulder. Henry pulled away, abandoning his shirt to the cop's grip, and ran. O'Malley bellowed, Hey, jerk face! I heard that! Get that guy! Henry ducked into the carousing crowd. 
He could see the subway entrance in front of him and push through the people toward it. In his peripheral vision, he noticed at least one cop shouldering through the revelers behind him. He dared not look back too obviously. Maybe they would lose sight of him and give up. He bumped into a middle-aged man about his height, wearing a baseball jersey, face painted black and white, smelled like he'd been smoking pot. Henry snatched the baseball guy's Yankees cap, put it on his head, and slipped out of the crowd near the subway stairs. The guy said something that Henry lost in the sea of loud-level voices roiling around him. Henry started down the subway stairs. When the mass of people loosened up, he took a deep breath. It sounded like the cops were a good distance behind. He was vulnerable, wearing only a wife-beater jeans and a pungent-smelling Yankees cap, descending into the stifling darkness. He looked at his phone. 11.32 p.m., 27% battery life remaining. He flicked on flashlight mode and shone the light around the floor and walls. Late-night costumed subway riders were gathered around the back wall far from the tracks. Some of their made-up faces were lit from below by the glow of their own phones, while others stood staring into the darkness like zombies. The air down here was still and heavy with the cloying odors of urine and hot metal, yet it was thankfully quiet. He tried to breathe in and coughed, jangling his own nerves with the sound. His light beam flickered over shiny support pillars, and then he was looking out into the yawning abyss where the tracks lay. He heard a familiar voice from ahead. Hey kid, don't go over there. That's the tracks. Train will be coming when the power's back on. It was Ty, the old blind man who often haunted this station in the fall months. The familiar voice inspired calm in Henry. Okay, he called back, annoyed by the sound of his own vocal echo. Come over here and give me a dollar, said Ty. Henry walked over until his flashlight illuminated the figure, seated, with his back against one of the pillars. A cloud of white woolen hair, like a halo around his ancient head. What the hell are you doing down here in a blackout, kid? Henry's heart hammered. He didn't know where the rain stopped and his perspiration started. I just left the cops. Mom might need... was all he could manage. He was a wreck. He caught his breath, put his hands on his knees. You just left the cops? Ty asked. No, no, uh, Henry said quietly, not wanting to call too much attention to himself. That beast O'Malley could be down on the platform with them by now, shining his heavy flashlight into people's faces, hunting him down. No, I, I need to get over to my mom's place. The cops, uh, they have streets blocked off while they're sorting through some accident or something on 3rd. I was thinking of turning around and going back home. To tell you the truth, I, I can't take much more of this. Ty's voice was soft and steady. Now, Henry, if you think your mom needs you, you need to check on her. She's the only mom you got. Henry stood there a moment and realized, even if Ty didn't understand the particular hell he was going through, it didn't make the old man any less correct. She was the only mom he would ever have, and he needed to take care of her. Moreover, he was the only one who could. He collapsed his fear and discomfort into a little ball inside him and focused on his mother. You're right, Ty. I'm, I'm going to go now. You take care, kid. I don't know what you're so freaked out about. It's only a blackout. 
Lights will come on again, for some of us anyway. Ty was blind in both eyes. He had it even tougher than Henry. Plus, he was always out here. Henry's thoughts swam with guilt. He fished out his wallet and pulled out two twenties. Here you go, Ty. The dry, old hand reached out and took the money. Thank you kindly. Now, you go do what you gotta do. Henry walked off toward another set of stairs. More than two-thirds of the way to Mom's place now. The honks and shouts of the surface were back to toothache levels by the time he reached the top flight. Rainwater flowed down the stairs. A crack of thunder hit, shaking the glass and metal around him, and that sent up a cheer from the surrounding partiers. A car alarm annoyingly blared nearby. The force of the thunderous boom lingered in Henry's chest, and he sank down to one knee, fighting the adrenaline surge. A man in a 16th-century-style waistcoat, frilly white scarf around his neck, reached down to help him up. "'You okay, man?' he said. "'You look kind of fucked up.' "'Yeah, I'm okay.' Henry rose slowly. The rain was still pouring down when he reached the top of the stairs. The streets around here were jammed with more gridlock, headlights, taillights, and their reflections. "'Wait, this wasn't Fourth. It was Waverly. He had overshot his mother's cross street.' and now he had to make his way back. He couldn't believe he had walked that far underground. Henry looked back up to the street sign and confirmed his mistake. The rain beat out on his face, and the forehead of his cap drumming loud against the fabric. Frustrated, he threw the hat to the pavement. He wasn't familiar with Waverly. He had spent too much time barricaded in his townhouse, quietly absorbed in his paintings, when he should have been pushing himself to be out here so something like getting lost in his own damn neighborhood wouldn't happen. Was he north or south fourth? He looked up and down the Avenue of the Americas. In the heavy rain, the city all looked the same. Fuck, I'm gonna die out here, he thought. Will this night never end? He put his palms over his ears and sobbed. He simply didn't have it in him to endure one more minute of the noisy maelstrom. He longed for home, where it was quiet, safe. It was then that he noticed the smoke-colored cat again. This time, it came right up to him, blinked, and rubbed its whiskered face on his wet jeans leg. He reached down to scratch it behind the ear. It meowed at him in response and purred, rubbing its face on him appreciatively. Who are you? He asked it. He laughed out loud, the sound dissonant coming so soon after his miserable sobs. The cat looked up and meowed in his face. I think I'll call you Smoke. Do you like that name, Smoke? It meowed again, then looked down the street, distracted by something. It took a few steps south, he believed, then looked back with an insistent look and meowed back to him. Smoke. That's a good name for a cat with gray fur like yours, Henry thought. I'm coming. He moved toward it. Smoke started moving away from him more quickly, then started running. I'll recognize something sooner or later, Henry thought. Hey, Smoke, wait up! The thought of having a companion with him in the chaos made him feel less a prisoner of his misophonia, calmed him. Smoke took off down the street, and Henry ran after 
He passed Taj jewelry, elegant nails, nothing he recognized. He kept going. They ran past St. Joseph's Roman Catholic Church. He remembered the triangular roof line and the two tall white pillars in front. He'd never gone in. He was Jewish, after all. Well, atheist, really. His culture was Jewish, like his father and mother. At last, he knew where he was. Smoke rounded the corner and started heading down Washington Place. They passed Sheridan Square, and he was there, on Barrow, the street where his mother lived. Fucking finally. Smoke looked over his shoulder and meowed. This had to be the street, yet it looked alien in the rain. There couldn't be more than one Barrow Street in the village, could there? He spotted his mother's building and approached, flanked by Smoke, his four-legged guide. Henry tried the key. It worked. Smoke darted inside and ran past the bay window. Henry stepped in, dripping wet, grateful for the quiet, though it was a little too quiet. Mom? Are you here? No answer. Mom! Henry called out. The sound of his own shout bothered him. He brought out his phone again and flicked it on that flashlight mode. He moved through the main area and into the hall. There she was, lying on the floor, motionless. He ran to her. Her long, wavy hair was splayed out around her head. Mom, Mom, he said, gently slapping her cheek. She was warm. Thank God. Her blue eyes fluttered open. She looked confused, focusing on his phone light. Mom, it's me, Henry. Henry? What are you... It's the middle... I I fell. You must have knocked yourself out. He gently helped her sit up. I was going to get my meds. I'll get them. You stay here. Are you okay? I think so, she said. 11.55 p.m. 11% battery life remaining. He shone the light beam down the hall and it illuminated the bathroom doorway. The maroon-tiled bathroom was kept the way he remembered from when he had been a child. In the mirrored medicine cabinet above the sink, he found the small orange plastic container of lithium she took for her disorder. He grabbed the pills and a glass of water that had been left by the sink and brought them to her. Here you go, Mom, he said. He was tearful this time with happiness. She carefully took the meds and smiled. You made it here in all this rain? Henry, what about your condition? I had to make sure you were all right. She leaned over and hugged him. You're an amazing son, Henry. Thank you. There were tears in her eyes. Hey, Mom, did you see a cat around here? I think he came in with me. A cat? No, I didn't see any cat. You can stay here tonight, Henry. We'll look for your cat tomorrow when the sun comes up. What color was it? Gray, with yellow eyes. Oh, she said. Was it a big cat? Yes. Mm Mm-hmm, she said. That sounds an awful lot like the cat your father and I had before Tigger, before you were born. We'd let him run around the neighborhood, and he'd always come back to us at the end of the day. One day he never came home. His mother looked at him with sudden, profound lucidity. She was back in the present. Or maybe she was finally coming to terms with the awful fight they had had decades ago about Tigger. Oh, Henry, she sobbed. I can't believe you came looking for me. 
I've been such a horrible mother. It had been a long time since he had seen her cry. He hugged her close. Mom, you did the best you could. What else can any of us do? I forgive you, Mom. They didn't find smoke that night, or after the sun rose in the morning. By then, the main force of the rain had abetted. After making sure Mom was okay, he hugged her goodbye, donned the spare earplugs he had stashed at her place, and walked back to his townhouse by 7 a.m. The rain stopped the next day, the first day of November. Henry headed out, wearing his noise-canceling headphones, and went to the local CVS to pick up supplies and some soft, expensive cat food, the kind Tigger had liked best. Every night after that, when he got ready for bed, he would walk out onto the patio and put out a measure of food and water in twin porcelain cat bowls. The dark, brown handrail framing the patio had legs spaced far enough apart for a cat to get through, even a big one. Every morning, he awoke to find the water and food missing. He never spied a cat, rat, or bat come during the day to help themselves. Maybe it happened at night, when he was sleeping soundly. It could have been any number of creatures, but in his heart, he knew it wasn't. It was smoke. I uh, really like the tension in that story. and Thank you. It's, it's not like it's super scary right off the bat. It's more like it's an unnerving feeling I feel through it. Like, I just feel uncomfortable the whole time I'm listening to it. I don't... It, it's an interesting form of, of horror because I think when people think horror, they automatically think, you know, something's going to come scare this guy, he's going to die, or there's going to be a murder. But I think fear for everyone is, is um, a spectrum. And if you are a person with auditory sensories like this gentleman has in this story, yeah. that is complete horror to live in, you know? Um, so I could only imagine, you know, what that's like to be a person in that situation with, with having to wear earplugs when you go outside, you know, and, and, and it, and, and just the rain, the traffic, the fucking cop, that's an asshole. Like, yeah. you know, which is kind of funny. Um, sure. A lot of people have a story to relate to about a, a, maybe, uh, you know, being young and a cop, messing with you. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the background of the story. You know, like, was there some music that that inspired it and some of your literary sources that inspired this? Yeah, I would say um, the, the major source of musical inspiration for me was uh, a song by Stan Ridgway called Camouflage, uh, where um, uh, a spirit of a fellow soldier helps uh, a Marine through a difficult night under enemy fire. He was in the same group, uh, Wall of Voodoo, right? That's right. Yeah, he used yeah. to be the front man for Wall of Voodoo in the 80s. Okay. It's probably the band I've seen more than any other band live. They were close to L.A., you know, locally based, so I was always seeing them. And I would say, like, uh, on the literary side, um, Smoke is basically The Odyssey by Homer. Um, you know, it's, it's about a guy that has been cast adrift from his place of comfort where, you know, in the Odyssey, in Odysseus's case, it's his home. Um, but in the case of Henry Peretz in Smoke, uh, his comfort place is being in a soundproof condominium in New York while the noise raises out, uh, rages outside. Uh, and of course, 
like Odysseus, he has to brave the impossible landscape to get to his goal. Um, so uh, that's basically what it is. Like O'Malley is basically the Cyclops from um, the Odyssey. <laughs> you know, he's, yeah. like, he's like an impossibly big, unbeatable opponent that he has to escape from. And uh, there are all kinds of uh, references to the Odyssey in there. And of course, just like in the Odyssey, uh, you know, Odysseus has uh, beings that help him you know, sort of get to the next stage and then he gets kind of swept back and he has to go forward. Uh, same thing happens to Henry in my story. You know, he gets uh, pelted by rain, bad weather, stuff he can't tolerate, you know, environments, uh, stuff like that. And, um, you know, misophonia is a real condition. Um, yeah, we're just starting to learn about. So, yeah, I read about it in this book by Oliver Sacks called uh, Music Gophelia. Um, I highly recommend it. Um, it's got all kinds of interesting brain disorders that are related to music and sound. Um, and it was a treasure trove of ideas for me uh, for this book. The way you structure your stories is almost, in a way, like a video game, you know, or, or you're, I know you're a fan of video games, but it's, you know, he's got these checkpoints he's got to get to, and his earplugs, you know, are a big kind of utility item that he needs to have with him. And, you know, just the... the O'Malley, the cop, trying to cross the street, the rain, you know, and then he's he talks to the blind gentleman, you know, all all of these things are almost like different levels in a complicated maze of a video game, too. Dude, that he's got to get out of, you know. Dude, you're a hundred percent right. I didn't even think of that. Like, yeah, it's a fucking video game, man. <laughs> yeah, totally, it totally is. And yeah, I mean, I I I eat, breathed, and slept video games for years. Uh, <laughs> yeah, could you? I mean, this this would actually be a scary game if you. You know, played it on headphones and your field of view is restricted and like the sound is so loud that it, it, it makes it disorienting for the character to actually move through the levels. You know, like it, you could have some fun with this with a, with a video game for sure. Yeah. No, I always wanted to work on a game like this. But, um, you know, practically the to do audio, to make audio such an essential part of the video game experience um, is challenging for game developers because of course everybody's audio system at home where the video game console is is right. different yeah so you don't know if they're listening to it in headphones or speakers or uh you know the crappy speakers that are normally attached to your tv or whatever right so um you know it's difficult but i have worked on i worked on a game called god of war where there was an audio part where um when you're playing this uh this greek warrior named kratos and he's got to follow the sound of the siren through um, this hostile environment. And, you know, the siren will appear on the left or right speaker, and you have to kind of move him towards what the sound is, and you don't know how much longer you have to go. Um, yeah. So it's kind of, a, that's I guess that was the closest I ever came to doing a sound-oriented <laughs> video game. But Well, I mean, that, I'd say it's pretty cool. You got to work on God of War, too. I mean, it's pretty damn cool. And it's a um, great, great game. Yeah, it is a great game. Um, you lived in New York for a bit and you almost got mugged, right? Yeah. Uh, the first time I, I visited Manhattan, um, was on business in 1991. It was a, a convention called the new music seminar. And I had just started working at new world, uh, pictures as a music business affairs guy. And, um, basically this is a retreat, uh, where you just hook up with other, you know, music producers, sound people, music business people, uh, you know, uh, schmooze uh, with them. And then you go see all these bands uh, that are playing and that are trying to be signed to labels or showcase their existing albums. So I'm a 20 or 21-year-old kid at this point. Uh, I go to Manhattan, which is the most exciting place on earth, 
and I have like unlimited resources uh, to go check out bands and, you know, drink all night and, you know, hang out with other music people. Like I was in heaven. And um, there were a group of us that, uh, that had just seen uh, a band, I think it was Dramarama. And uh, we were in the West Village and uh, we took a wrong turn down one street and these dudes started following us. And uh, oh, shit. yeah, we... It's uh, fucking scary when you're... I mean, New York... And this is what what year is this again? Yeah, 91. It was before the clean years. <laughs> yeah, this was a shitty time for New York, man. It was a scary time to be. A, a lot of major cities were scary around that time, you know? There's a lot of crime happening. Yeah, we live in a different world now, man. Very different world. I don't think I don't think some of the younger if you know, I don't know how what our audience age is going to be, but um yeah, 80s and 90s American cities were, were there's some sketchy shit. Yeah. Um <laughs> yeah, if if you guys ever want to uh you guys that are listening ever want to see what New York was like in uh in the old days, in the bad old days. Um there are tons of well, I mean, I guess taxi driver. Oh yeah. I mean, I feel like there's tons of movies too that depict that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the seamy New York. But uh yeah, now it's all clean and polished and it's beautiful. It's still exciting. Um So you're you're getting ready to turn down the street and you see these these gentlemen start to fall. Oh, yeah. No, these guys, there were three of us, and um, there were four of them, and they started quickening their pace and uh, started calling to us. And at that point, one of us, not me, unfortunately, but one of us said, run for it. Like, these guys are coming for us. And we ran. Uh, so we ran. We we just went through another neighborhood, and eventually they were gone. Were they chasing you at all? Did you yeah. look back, and they were, like, trying to keep up with you? Yeah, for about the first block or so. Oh, shit. <laughs> Yeah, like as soon as we got to like a crowd, they gave up. Oh my um, god! But uh, man, it was just lucky for us that we went the right way. Uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, I may not have had a good story to tell about New York when I got back home. You might have had a different horror story you wrote here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would be a more personal personal experience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so yeah, it was like your own uh, personal escape from escape from New York. <laughs> Yes. Or escape in New York. <laughs> yeah, but but you're right. I think that like the the idea of New York as a hostile environment probably came from that experience. Well, I mean, think of uh, how many comic books uh, you know do we know of and comic book movies that just use that still to this day as a as you know they might not say it's in New York, but you can kind of get the picture and yeah. you know it's just a lot of dark alleys and it's raining. And it's like you know a big a city where you can't see outside of the concrete jungle when it's raining is pretty fucking terrifying to me because I am pretty claustrophobic. So that's always been my problem with New York. I like New York, but not having a field of vision away from buildings kind of creeps me out a little bit. It, it is it is intimidating. Even for somebody without claustrophobia, it's a, a bizarre thing to see, to, to be like surrounded by these gigantic buildings. Yeah, um, you have like a go. sliver of sky to look at, you know? And right. I've lived in... San Francisco, I've lived in uh, L.A., obviously, and then I've lived in, you know, Seattle here, and those are the biggest cities I've lived in, and L.A., you know, you can only see in L.A., like, it, yeah. like, the, build, like the buildings aren't that big, you know, and downtown L.A., like, is has some development going on, but you, you yeah. can still see things, yeah. and you can always ca- catch a glimpse of some of the mountains in Los Angeles, too, which always get, it's like my comfort, is if I can see mountains or lots of sky, yeah, um, but yeah, I had that fear in New York as well. Yeah, I would say San Francisco is a little close to New York in the proximity of tall buildings. Uh, and Seattle, I guess if you go to the center of Seattle these days, it's yeah, yeah, really growing, right? blowing up skyscrapers all over the place. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Seattle is growing immensely. Um, so this story, from my understanding, is you did it. This anthology, a lot, 
correct me too, is are all these stories are coming from other publishings, right? Like this story was published somewhere else before it made it in the anthology, right? That's true. This story was, but um, there are four previously unpublished stories. Okay, so we have four uh, new stories that, that have never seen print. Never have seen print. That's exciting. Why don't you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the original treatment for this story and where tell us about that oh yeah well it's funny um you know i found online uh, a publisher that was looking for a cat anthology um so i came up with smoke and i wrote it and about a week before the submission period ended they shut it like they i guess they had enough stories or whatever and they There's just a lot of cat people out there man i know cat, cat shit on the internet still some of the most popular content <laughs> they are popular <laughs> Um, but these guys had all they needed. So I, I tried to submit and they're like, we're no longer accepting, uh, accepting submissions. And I was like, shit, man, I've been working on this for a month. Like, what am I going to do with it? So my next thought after the frustration was, well, maybe I can sell it to somebody else. So I started looking again and eventually I found somebody doing a Halloween anthology. So nice. with a few adjustments to smoke, I set it on Halloween night and submitted it to the new anthology, which is called Black Candy, which is now out of print. And if you have a copy Hold on to it because it's fucking valuable. Like I've seen them sell on Amazon Marketplace for about three hundred bucks. Wow! <laughs> so you're you are part of that anthology? Yeah, that's right. That's amazing, man. That's pretty cool. Um, it's long out of print in both in both cases. Okay. Yeah. So maybe you could tell us about like you said it was originally written for a cat anthology, which is I'm very intrigued by this cat anthology. I'm just picturing like cat people with like a house full of cats reading cat books with cat calendars. You yeah. Know. Um, I'm surprised they didn't send you that little cat meme of like a, a, a cat in an office typing on a keyboard. Like that's the person that said, sorry, submissions are closed. <laughs> right. You know, it's Mr. Jingles. Um, yeah. What what parts of the story helped you adapt it for uh, Black Candy? I knew that I wanted it set at night. And um, I think in the original version of the story, uh, I had it set during the West Village Gay Pride Parade, which was is also like loud and raucous. Um, but uh, the, the most of the notes that my editor had on the new anthology, uh, who was awesome, by the way, uh, she she mentioned to me, yeah, uh, the times on the phone like when when he's reading them don't really line up with Halloween night um and she was right like i went back and i looked at everything and i was like oh i forgot to change the times because in order to set it on halloween night everything had to be set earlier in the evening rather than over uh you know overnight like okay. you know past midnight yeah. when, when i had it originally so uh in my rush to resubmit it to a new anthology before those gates closed <laughs> I uh, missed a couple of details, but my editor didn't. She caught them, and um, and anyway, I'm glad to have the edited final version in my new collection. So that's great, man. And you know, as an audio person, um, you know, I I've never really practiced as a mixer so much. Um, so I've always kind of mixers were kind of like my editors as a sound designer, and I, I did a few, you know, fun sci-fi kind of horror flicks there that made it on the sci-fi channel you know oh, um nice. and those were so much fun because you over design everything and then the the mixer is kind of like your editor they're kind of like drawing things back and and they're 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 playing with the kind of um you know the ebb and flow of how those sounds come in and out of the and tell the story and yeah it's actually always my favorite part it, it, i actually prefer to work with a mixer because i love what they do to my work i love that passing it on to the next person and 
seeing how they, you know, things they take out or things they enhance, ideas that I was like, whoa, shit, I didn't even know that was fucking in there. I don't know where you, how'd you pull that out of my, my sounds? It's pretty cool, you know? And yeah. I imagine working with an editor as a writer, it's, it's a similar process, right? Like you you see what they take out or what suggestions they have and it really refines and polishes the the work so you know what how how's your relationship with editors been for that uh man it's been fantastic i i never once encountered an editor who made a comment i didn't like you know i obviously it's difficult to get notes back from for sure you know a gatekeeper that's that's going to say yes or no to you joining their book which is the whole point of you writing the story in the first place so you know you submit a story you're waiting usually wait a month or so, and then you finally get a, uh, an answer back, and sometimes the answer is, we really like the story, but is there any way you could make this part a little more violent? Or is there any way you could make this part a little less violent? Or, you know, uh, stuff like that, where, you know, your first thought is obviously like, well, it's written that way because it has to be written that way. Like, that's the way I wrote it. Yeah, yeah. But um, then after a couple of hours of distance, like, you start to see their point. Like, you know, these... Uh, you know, editors and publishers are in the, the the business of selling books. So if they think your story isn't a good fit for them or a part of your story isn't a good fit for them, but the story is, um, you should listen to them if you want to be part of that sale. And if you don't, then you say, well, sorry, it's not a good fit. Uh, I'll find another anthology. Um, but that has never happened to me in my life. Like I've always taken to heart the suggestions of my editor. And I believe that hundred percent of those comments have made my stories better. Well, that's awesome, man. And it's good to hear that you take constructive criticism um, to heart that way and actually implement it in to help you better yourself. Well, everyone, that is all the time we have for today. I want to thank Victor again for being here and we look forward to talking to you all on the next episode. See you guys later. Bye.